0: You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears
1: in rain. On Wednesdays, we were pink. I love the smell of pump in the morning.
0: Here's looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're going to need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris.
1: And welcome back to Films and Friends.
0: My name's Josh. It is now 2020. We are in a new year. But despite being a new year, I am still, as ever, joined by Tobias.
1: I'm still here. Yeah.
0: Hello. (laughs) And after the run of our bonus episodes, we are finally joined by another friend to uh, just give you really a break from myself and Tobias' voices. We are joined by Mossin. Hello. So before we start, and as it is a new decade, I thought the best way to start this would be to give our sort of film New Year's resolutions for this year. And as I'm kind of springing this on you, I will be first. Mine is... 100% 100% to see more foreign films because I um, as much as I do like watching them, when it comes down to it on Netflix,
1: I'm trying to find something to watch, I do generally just go for something I have heard of before. See, mine's along those lines. So, on the one hand, I want to um, keep a better track record of what I've watched, which is why I've made a list on my letterbox where I'm listing every single film I watch in 2020. That way, at the end of the year, I can actually maybe have a ranking going. Maybe make it not just films of 2020, but films I've seen in 2020. So that could be fun. But what's similar to yours is that I want to see more foreign language films. Now, that's a bit different for me because the concept of foreign language films usually implies a film that's not in English. Whereas to me, growing up, foreign language meant not in English or Spanish. Mm. Because Spanish cinema and um, Argentine cinema or any form of Latin American cinema is home cinema to me so i want to see more films in other languages for example i've never seen a film in czech and um my housemate and friend matias who was on a couple weeks um couple couple weeks you know a couple episodes ago he recommended a couple czech films and i want to see those there's a couple french films that i want to get round to even though i've seen a decent amount of french cinema i just need to yeah dig my teeth into more um subtitle films like mm. we don't need to be afraid of subtitles
0: yes you should uh get over the three centimeter box at the bottom of the screen yeah. in the words of um i always get his name wrong i always get the names wrong around bong joon ho yeah bong that's right isn't bong it yeah. yeah i was get i was
1: can't remember if it's that way around or the bong is his surname his first name but before mossin before you give your uh, resolution the one thing about Parasite and um and bong Joon Ho that um Makes me, makes me quite sad is that I opened letterbox one day and a guy I follow wrote a review for Parasite. And that Parasite review is one sentence and it's better than any article I've ever written or ever will write. And he literally just goes, another bong hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've got you there, to be fair. <laughs> so, Martin, what's your resolution? Um,
2: I think my resolution is, well, I kind of agree with
1: you two both on watching more
2: foreign films. films um but for me specifically i think i want to definitely rewatch films a bit more because i find myself just watching a film once and then if it's a very complex film you don't really get to formulate a proper opinion on it and i'm you know i'm no avid film goer compared to you two, but i want to be able to you know properly formulate opinions on films so i think that requires a few more rewatches before i you know properly be- formulate an opinion
1: on things yeah no that, that that's a fair way to look at it and on the on, because you mentioned the educated film uh, viewing, when you review films, you have a different mindset um, than when you're just watching a film for pleasure. So, it's I mean it's like working out. You you need to practice. You get used to it. It becomes a habit. It becomes super just ingrained in in the way you watch films, and it's something something you can kind of. Um, just practice which is when you watch a film um as you're watching it if you want to you don't have to but if you want to just kind of try and break down what's going on it's like oh what's the camera work behind this i wonder what the um was going through the filmmaker's mind when they wrote this line stuff like that which then uh adds up to more analytic viewing that sometimes you don't even need a second viewing for a film but it's but it's worth giving a go and even on but still multiple viewings might actually be super helpful yeah, I very rarely see
0: films that I review more than one. But I think the best thing to really do is to not leave it too long. Is You should always leave it a good amount of time before seeing the film and writing the review, but never leave it too long to like, make the notes. I find that if I watch a film and then immediately afterwards you get on the bus home or'll make the notes, because a film I reviewed last year at Grimfest, I didn't do that because I had to go and do something immediately afterwards and I kind of forgot to do it. And I got to the week later and I think I had about 17 words written on a, in the notes on my phone and I had to write like a review out of that. And I was like... I'm going to struggle with this. It was fine in the end. I I
1: sort of remembered it and watched the trailer and sort of pieced it all back together again. But it was not a good decision. No, and especially when you get into film festivals that you're watching about four films a day, you have to take notes. Yeah. Don't do what um, writers from big publications do, which is run out of the cinema as the credits roll and write a review. I think that's terrible. But maybe do kind of get a little wiggle on to find a quiet corner and just write down all your thoughts, just everything you thought about the film, just write down a notebook. That way, when you look back at it in a few days, you can go, okay, so this is what I was thinking at the time, and you'll remember the film a lot better. I find I always
0: feel much more positive the day after a film, just because I haven't been in the cinema for that long. Like, sitting still for three hours isn't conducive to giving a good opinion of something. In regards of how, like, even the best films, I I don't actually mind long films that much, but after three hours, like, it is... A three-hour film is quite an extensive... Sort of it's a kind of grueling experience, and you are sort of, uh, sort of inevitably you're going to come out of it feeling a bit like, you know, was was that a bit long? But when you sort of look back, when you actually go, actually no, it wasn't too long. I actually really enjoyed
1: those bits, and yeah, yeah. In the moment, it it might seem different, but in the moment, we have Moss in here in the studio. See, our transitions 2020, we're off to a hot start. We (laughs) are indeed. What's uh, your occupation? How do you know Josh or me? so i am unemployed <laughs> oh, hey
2: um but no i know toby through MUN, um and josh i just met 10 yeah. 20 minutes ago yeah so that's 10 minutes of my life so far
0: <laughs> thank you very much so um what we'd like to start doing really is by asking people to start listing off their, sort of their favorite um films sort of writers directors genres and i was wondering what what your take on that is um
2: so in terms of my favorite genres i don't think i have a specific genre but i'm gonna be honest i think my film taste is a bit basic at times um like for example i think my favorite film of all time is probably shawshank redemption which is like i think that's imdb's number one as well
0: yeah I think it's top 250 so, it's number one
2: yeah it's not exactly the most like out there film taste but i think i can appreciate a good film when i see it um and also in terms of um favorite films of all time as well um one of my favorite films of all time as well is Grave of the Fireflies, which I know Toby's not seeing. But I think that film, which if you don't know, it's a, uh, I think, Studio Ghibli mm. film. I think the message from that film is that really resonated with me, especially if you consider like the current, cli- uh, current climate in terms of like, will there be a war with Iran? Will, you know, this sort of stuff. And the, the anti-war message from that for me was like, it really resonated with me. So I think films that have a sort of undertone in terms of a message are films that Definitely appeals to me.
0: We once had a joke on like, our second podcast with Becca, where we tried to compare. We were talking about how every film has a message, really, and we said about we tried to compare *The Shawshank Redemption* to *Up*.
2: Well, I mean, I guess they're
0: both. Well, what was the comparison between the two? It was to do. I can't remember what it was to do with. Wasn't it to do with like the whole thing being free and stuff?
1: Yeah, it was kind of the idea of self liberation in, in 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 the face of all odds.
0: I mean, I suppose that's a fairly
2: valid comparison. I mean. One does have a flying house, and one has, you know, like someone stuck in
0: a prison for thirty years. But yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, potato,
0: potatoes, the same thing. No, I just, I just meant it in the sense that I think, although it's a be- sort of you describe it as a basic film taste, I think those sort of parallels of sort of, the, sort of those kind of strong themes are the best films, and I think don't think it's, I don't think it is particularly basic to say, which I've like been saying, um, sort of uh, obviously it's a very cliche thing to say. I really like Dark Side of the Moon, but it is a really good album. Like, there's, there are certain sort of... There's definitely things in media where obviously it is cliche to say how much you like them, but it is because they are really, really good. I think that's sort of the... I think, that's, I think that is perhaps where some people do come down in sort of film criticism, in the sense that sometimes you think, oh, this is is a really basic answer. It's like, oh, who's your favourite actor at work at the moment? It's like, well, well, Leonardo DiCaprio is really good. It's like, well, yeah, but everyone says that. So, like, yeah, everyone says it, because it's true.
1: Yeah, it was, I had a moment uh, of that this week where I was there's a facebook group called patrician music chart posting where essentially it's a it used to be a music um rate what i listen to group and then it just kind of became a music discussion group and people were talking about oh what's like your favorite album for this feeling or your favorite album of this decade and people were like posting stuff like swans and daughters and all sorts of like really not heavy metal, but, you know, that kind of, like, heavy music that you really, really want to listen to. Or, like, there was this, this artist, I can't remember her name right now. I think um, um her name is, like, Cleopatra might be her name. It, it was something kind of um Egypt-related. And her music, again, is, like, very, very weirdly abrasive. And I was listening to this, and I was like, honestly, it's not enjoyable. It's not enjoyable. What's wrong with just enjoying the music you enjoy? Nothing. Same with film. Yeah, I, I
2: think... I don't necessarily believe in it in the concept of like something an art form being objectively good. But I think there are certain things that like certain films, certain pieces of music that not objectively good but they definitely appeal to so many people that you can't really deny the the merits of them and yeah, it may be a bit basic, but I'm a basic bitch, so
0: I guess, yeah, I guess it is sort of, I suppose as well, it is that commonality of a theme like the Shawshank Redemption in that everyone, like, for some people, probably their worst fear in life is probably being trapped in prison for 30 years for a crime you probably didn't commit. Yeah, I mean, if you
1: go on a basic list of fears, if you ask someone, what's your worst fear? Someone will be like, oh, being, uh, losing everyone I love, or the, the the deep feeling of isolation. You're like, yeah, okay, you, you, you can go as deep as you want. But if you tell someone, hey, would you be happy if you were stuck in prison for 30 years? They probably go, No. i suppose that might be the reason why so like the two like the saw
0: films still used to make lots of money even though they were objectively not very good i suppose it's that sort of like i think maybe there are that sort of the commonality of theme of sort of if you can tap into something primal in people like i don't like the idea of having to chop your arm off to escape a bomb going off or something like that i've never actually seen any of them but that's something that might happen there's a bear trap in one of them it's on someone's head Apparently, but yeah, that it, sort of thing,
1: basic, basic human fear, yeah, yeah, when, when you boil down films to basic human emotion it's also why films like Jackass that we spoke about in the last bonus episode, which they sell because at the end of the day, seeing someone get hit in the balls is funny, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you can't deny that,
0: and I suppose it's why other films that perhaps that is the sort of difference between sort of films that are sort of that. People do can enjoy on that level and stuff like I don't know something like Jack and Jill. It's like there are no, there's no no one's watching that and going oh I can really identify with the themes in this film. And it's sort of it's not a, like I don't know having a twin sister who looks identical to you in drag
1: is not is not a common theme. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's all about just the empathy with mm, doesn't necessarily have to be with the character or the story, but just the feeling of the film. Yeah. Um, we recently watched Moss and I watched Uncut Gems. And one of the main feelings that film transmits is anxiety and stress, and you and, and excitement, just exhilaration at, at multiple points. And yeah, I felt that so strongly. I haven't had a film make me feel like that in ages. Would you say it's worse than Good Time? Uh, no, I th- I think it's actually better than Good Time. I really, really, really. like Oh good no, time. I mean, I, so, yeah, I meant in terms of um in terms oh, yeah, of exactly. anxiety. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, way, God. Way, more, way more because. Whereas in good time you rarely have more than three people um arguing at once. Yeah. In one of in one scene, there is literally seven conversations happening at the same time. Wow. Seven. That does sound intense. So sort of to get back to what
0: Mossin was saying before, like what are the sort of um so in terms of not genre specifically, but what about directors? Are there any specific directors that you sort of enjoy watching and sort of have a sort of good overview of their sort of filmography?
2: Um so Definitely, um, recently I've been watching a lot of uh, Martin Scorsese, mm, nice. just because The Irishman came out, so I went through all his, his catalogue. And um, I really like his style of filmmaking because it's it's almost like if a film was made in a montage sort of sense, It's it's got a narration, but you follow, it's almost just like pieces of someone's life over a long period of time. And for some reason that quite a- appeals to me because it's just, you're not, just focusing on a very specific per- time in someone's life you're focusing on their whole life in general so for that that is for me it's a very good character study because you see them when they're young you see them how they develop into you know the Scorsese film it's probably them in the mob but um and how they develop into that sort of thing and how they you know lose sort of all their morals and that sort of thing so the my favorite um, Scorsese film is uh, Goodfellas and you see the main character, Henry Hill, from like five years old up until, I think that's in the 1940s, and so you see him all the way up, up until the 80s, so you literally watch him develop as a human throughout the whole film. And that definitely, I, that's something I really enjoy, I think.
1: So uh, I I think a film you'd quite enjoy, because, so, so what Scorsese does, he kind of has these building blocks of what a biography of a character should be. And someone else who does this is, um, uh, God, please tell me it's Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, but have you seen Boogie Nights? I have not, unfortunately. So that's the one I recommend because it's 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 similar to Scorsese's style of you watch a character evolve. And Boogie Nights, um, I, I've spoken about it on the podcast before. And the more I think about the film, the more of a monumental achievement it is. So the film it, it is a pretty, uh, kind of rough story about uh yeah just a young guy who gets wrapped into um the adult film industry and yeah he basically becomes a porn star and like leaves his parents and it's all about kind of what does family mean to you what does um what 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 does success mean to you but all studied through this one character played by mark Wahlberg, who's brilliant in it but the what makes it even crazier is that this film, which deals with so many heavy themes, Paul Thomas Anderson was uh, twenty-six when he made it. Yeah, this man was was really, really ahead of himself, and it, it's. I think you'd quite enjoy it, in that feeling of um watching character evolve over time.
0: There are some really crazy stories about stuff like that in terms of the age at which filmmakers, not necessarily made the films, but some of the ones in which they wrote. When that was um, Good Will Hunting. Is they wrote it when they were like, what well, were they like, nineteen twenty-one, something ridiculously young? Mark Affleck, Mark—that's not even a name. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. I don't know where that came from.
1: Say hey, Mac Affleck.
0: <laughs> God knows. <laughs> actually, looking at the list, Good Will Hunting is actually on your list of yeah, well, uh, films. I was actually reading about how, how they actually started writing
2: that. They started writing that in, um, I think they met in like elementary school or something. Mm. So for them to have that idea form like the rough idea formulated at like thirteen, I don't know how old you are in elementary
1: school, but um yeah, that's
2: that's pretty incredible,
1: I think. And if I'm not mistaken, I watched Good Goodwill Hunting last summer and I really enjoyed it. Um and it yeah, it's one of those again, kind of like basic well loved films. But if I'm not mistaken the the monologue slash dialogue, but it's a bit more of a monologue that um uh Robin Williams, <laughs> the monologue that Robin Williams does about his wife that used to fart all the time when she was sleeping or whatever—I think that was completely improvised. Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that
0: um, you hear a lot of stories now, especially now he's passed away, from stuff that Robin Williams did, and to most of it was like he said, like, "Oh, the apple did most of it," and it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I th- yeah, it is. I don't think I've—I don't think I've actually seen Good Hunting before, actually, which is probably bad.
1: You, you should get round to it. It's, yeah. it's a very solid film that. But- you watch it and you're like, there is nothing objectively wrong with this film. No wonder it's just such an important film for so many people. I'm looking at the list of your favourite sort of films and you've really managed to cover
0: a lot of like massive sort of directors. So you've gone sort of Scorsese, you've got there, you've got um But Tarantino, you've got some, a couple, you've got, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dennis Villeneuve, you've got um, Christopher Nolan as well. You really have like, for for a list of favourite films, you really have nailed a lot of very good films i think out of everyone we've had on like if you if i if i had to take the list of favorite films and actually go and watch all of them this would probably be the one i would pick
2: well i'm gonna take that as a massive compliment um maybe i'm not so basic after all then
0: mm.
1: well, Does it- the one film on here that i agree with being a great film Borat? oh <laughs> but my question to you is and we've we've had this conversation before of the other films that Sasha and Cohen is in or has directed uh, or written, I, c- I can't remember what role he plays in a lot of the films, but the ones that he starred in from that Borat era, do you think any of them are good? Or if they're good, do they hold up to Borat?
2: So um, I think Ali G is great. Um, I think the movie the movie itself is good, but the show is brilliant. But um, the other two films are Bruno and The Dictator. Yes. Right? Yeah, I think, I've not seen Bruno, but I didn't think The Dictator was very good because it, it, it didn't feel like... I felt like the satire was way too, like, you know, nail on the head. It wasn't... Like, Borat's not exactly subtle, but uh, I think The Dictator was so much like... It didn't really say anything that we didn't already know, and it was just a bit... I don't know, and also, I just didn't, get, didn't think it was as funny because it was, so, cause it was a lot more scripted, whereas Borat, like, is quite... improvised but yeah yeah it's um actually interviewing and actually talking to actual real life americans and you can see the attitudes that they have
0: yeah i think to be fair like a a sort of um what is it like saudi prince or sort of that area of the world is really rich and doesn't understand american customs is very low-hanging fruit whereas borat and also sort of like i think to an extent that ultimately like when you watch borat it isn't as offensive to pe- to the, the nation of Kazakhstan as pe- you might initially think, because actually what he's doing is just using that as the lens to
1: make fun of how mental American culture is. Yeah, and it's that idea that I think, because Borat is a fully fictional character, from he's essentially from a fictional place, because although Kazakhstan is real, what, but his village mm. isn't a real village. Yeah. And the way it's all portrayed, I'm sure they didn't actually go out to Kazakhstan and went, yes, we're going to study this. They just kind of went... Yeah, this is going to be his village. Because they could have said he was from the middle of, uh, you know, he could be in the, from the middle of, of Yorkshire or, the, you know, Alabama. Yeah. And it would have been like, yeah, he just is out of touch with the world because he's lived forever in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And it would still hold up without being offensive, I, I yeah. think. Whereas, uh, yeah, the dictator was just kind of, the character was, again, fictional yet too based in reality.
0: Yeah, I think, as, again, sort of to go back to what I was kind of... I don't know if I sort of expressed it as well as I could have there, but what I meant was kind of... I think in Borat is making fun of not Kazakhstan and Borat, is making fun of America through that, whereas the dictator is making fun of Saudi princes and sort of that stuff, which isn't as funny in my opinion. And also, I think there's a something to be said about sort of... Um, with the With Ali G as well, that is like... Although some people do argue that it is sort of offensive to sort of a working class stereotype ultimately it is used to it's not aiming it at them it's more like when you see him like interviewing Jacob Rees-Mogg and just just mocking him like it's aiming it at that's what's funny not the character itself
1: yeah it's just the idea of what if someone's super ignorant yeah. interviewed someone who is supposedly well-educated or successful in their field. That's it.
0: In some ways, it's very similar to the stuff that um, in his early career Louis Thru does, where it's sort of the faux-naive approach in that you basically don't say anything to them. You allow them to basically dig their own grave by... And if you, especially like a lot of his stuff, he does with like um, sort of the, the Nazis ones he's done and sort of the uh, Westboro Baptist Church, you notice that he doesn't ever really give any real opinions. He just sort of acts as sort of like, oh, I don't really know what's going on here. So just talk to me about it. And he lets them sort of said, dig their own graves, basically, and make themselves sound as ridiculous as possible. Although one thing that is, relatively, I don't know if it's amusing or just sort of dark, is that at one of, I think it was the Winter Olympics, the last Winter Olympics, someone won a medal from Kazakhstan and they played the Bora anthem, not the actual one. Yeah, that's a,
1: it, it didn't go down well, unsurprisingly. That So that's, you're, what you're saying is the real world version of that video of the baseball game where it's like, please rise for our national anthem, and then it's, it's Britney,
0: bitch. Yeah. People <laughs> booing. It's just that. So to sort of take it from something like The Dictator, which we aren't, clearly aren't really a fan of, what kind of films aren't you a fan of, my son? Well, you, in... do, you do them better. I don't, I don't like doing them.
1: <laughs> so talking about monumental disappointment by large crowds of people, people were very disappointed at the Oscars. And you said that your least favourite type of films are pretentious Oscar bait. See, there we go. Yeah, well,
2: um, like looking at um, a lot of Oscar nominations, not just this year, but in the past, like, you, you get things like Lincoln, for example. And for me, that film is just tailor made for the Oscars. Yeah, and I can't really sit through it because it's just—it's not a very interesting story. I mean, everyone knows about Abraham Lincoln; everyone knows his, his sort of life, and it just doesn't interest me because it's not. Again, there's no real like risk in it, and there's no real like—it doesn't inspire me. It doesn't give me a message. It doesn't really make me go. It, I don't go away from that film thinking about something or a concept or something. I just see. I see some good acting. I see some good cinematography. I see
1: some good directing, but nothing more than that, really. That's how I feel with a lot of films that um, Meryl Streep has been in recently. She's kind of used as she's a great actress, so let's put her in. Um, what was the one for a couple of years ago? Was it Spotlight? The Post. The Post. Yeah, the Post and Spotlight, basically the same film. <laughs> uh, they're not. I think I
0: actually didn't think Spotlight was that. I thought Spotlight was quite good. I don't think it really falls into that category because it was doing something. Because I think that the category is kind of more like history based. Okay. That's the real Oscar bait. I think. Yeah, the, cause true. Because the, cause the uh, Spotlight was very much very current about sort of the um, the uh, Catholic church in Boston where there was like obviously vicars who were abusing children. And then they were saying to the parents, oh yeah, we we're dealing with them. And all they were doing was moving them four parishes over. And this was happening multiple times. That if, if a spotlight really is incredible, it's really worth a watch.
1: Fair, enough. but I mean more in in retrospect, it's a kind of a, they're breaking a big story, and it just kind of blends together, which just shows how the post is so um, just unremarkable. Yeah, it it it's the idea of will you be thinking about this film in five years' time? Mm. That's what I think is the main question when you consider best picture contenders for Oscars. Because there was there's some films that were hyped at the time of release, which, sure, uh, the one example I have is, is a film called Dope, which, it, it was never going to be Oscar contender, it's not a great film, but I remember it was hyped at the time it released, I watched it, thought it was okay, and then I saw something about it a couple of months ago, and I was like, I don't remember a single scene from this film, and I had to look up scenes from the film, and I very vaguely remembered it. And it's that idea. that There's a lot of Oscar films which you say, "Can you tell me a single scene from that film?" People won't. It's just you won't.
0: I think the big one this year is uh, Ford versus Ferrari, which I am going to get around to watching. But it's that kind of like I saw. I saw an interesting tweet about it, and it was like someone. It was sort of uh, the premise was why it doesn't get as much like attention. And sort of articles, everything number of articles written about best picture contenders. There's very few, very few stuff actually written about Ford versus Ferrari, and people are like, oh, "Why is that?" And said, so, "Well, ultimately, like it is." For lack of a better term, it's just a dad film, isn't it? It's like yeah. a film about the heyday of motorsports with cars
1: and Christian Bale and Matt Damon, who probably give very solid performances. Yeah, apparently the performances are good and the, the actual technical aspects of the film are really good. So it's the kind of thing which if you quite enjoy cars, you're going to quite enjoy it. Or if you enjoy films about strong rivalries, you're going to enjoy it as well. Mm. Um because even though it's kind of like a general premise it is it falls more in line with like the dad aspect yeah definitely I mean I want to watch it because I don't want to tell my dad go watch it yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much it I think also
2: not just historical films I think the Academy loves films about film the film industry like which uh, for example Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Mm. I didn't think it was a very good film like I thought it was I thought it was quite boring at times like it really did drag and I think for example Margot Robbie um I think she was totally like wasted in that film, and but it's gonna do. It already did well at the Golden Globes, and it's probably gonna do well at the Oscars
1: simply because it's a film about films. Mm.
0: And... Yeah, that was probably the biggest shock about a La La Land not winning Best Picture.
1: Yeah, film about film didn't do well, whereas uh, Birdman. Yeah, that did. Which, oh, sure, it was about stage plays, but it was still kind of talking about film and in its way about fallen stars and whatnot. Yeah, that, again, that. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably going to do quite well at the Academy Awards just because, yeah. Didn't Margot
0: Robbie get a Best Supporting Actress nomination for that film or something ridiculous? No, I think
1: Margot Robbie got it for uh, Bombshell.
0: No, but she's got two at one, In one of them, she's in. I think it's a BAFTA, she has two.
1: And one of them is Once Upon a Time I in Hollywood. I think it might be. I, yeah, I think it was a BAFTA nomination which I was just thinking all you got to do is put your feet up on a car's dashboard for two minutes and you win an award.
0: That's not even... Is that her in that? Who does that? I don't know, that's, different, that's, a, that's a different
1: person. No, she, 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 she. Oh, you know, it's, it's the other. Well, her feet are up in the cinema anyway. You get Margot Robbie feet in that film. There's a lot of feet in that film. That, yeah, I. Obviously, everyone knows about
0: the Quentin Tarantino feet thing, but there are so many feet in that film. Is it? It in terms of a feet to minute ratio,
1: <laughs> that is off the scale. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. If you think of violent moments versus feet, I think they're about. Well, there's more feet than violence. In that film. Someone
0: should actually add up. They should go through his entire filmography and add up how many, sh- how many just just feet there are, and it's probably a disturbing amount of time. The worst one, I don't know if I can say. This, I can say it on a podcast; cause it's fine. There is a very, there's a w- very weird bit where, um, basically, oh god, basically, it's in from dusk till dawn, and it is weird, and it gets weirder, and it is a bit where he's, it's quite touching. He's sat at a table; because he's obviously in the film, and it's a uh, Salma Hayek who's d- dancing on a table and she's pouring tequila over herself and he's like licking it off her feet which is weird and it gets weirder when you realize that he
1: wrote the film so he wrote that into the film so he could basically do that but nothing beats nothing beats <laughs> the one film that came out last year with a uh, written directed and starring um clint eastwood where he played some sort of Retired veteran that is now a trucker and was under some kind of threat, some kind of you know BS premise from one of his films. Except that one point in the film, he has a threesome with three with with two women who are in their early twenties. Right? He he wrote, directed, and starred in this. That's just (laughs) sick.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's you probably shouldn't be doing that business, should you? Really? When you think about it.
1: And I mean, I I don't know what else there is to say about. Oscar-bait films. It's just kind of very much that's what you don't like. But is there any any other films that you haven't listed because you, that's a, <laughs> a big umbrella term there, but uh, any other films that you come to mind that you don't quite like?
2: Well, um, one film in particular that comes into mind is I watched half of it on Netflix like a week ago. It was a uh, 2012. Um, I don't know if you remember that film. It's the natural disaster based on the Mayans one. And I remember like, somewhat liking it as a kid, but I thought... You know, I'll give it a chance to see if this. I know the plot is stupid because it's something about neutrinos expanding. <laughs> um, uh, But I thought, like, you know, I'll give it a chance to see if the actual the action um, and the actual dialogue holds up. But it absolutely does not. And then I think that brings me to the sort of genre of films I don't like. It's just because my mum is really into like just random spy and action films. And I always have to watch them with her. Um, and they're all so bad. Like, I think there's a new one on Netflix with uh, Ryan Reynolds. Six on the ground. Yeah, it's awful.
0: That's the Michael Bay one, yeah. I think, yeah, I think especially with action films and sort of disaster films as well, they haven't really been good in this century.
1: No, it's been quite unremarkable in the the 2010s because it's kind of... Action films are good when they're very much aware of how ridiculous they are. And some of them aren't, like... Hobbs and Shaw, I think, is peak... Or any of the Fast and Furious, it's just mm. kind of peak action film where, where you just kind of get to the point where, where you're just trying to make it bigger and better, but you can't make it bigger or better because how do you get bigger and better from, I don't know, like, don't don't they, like, fight a nuclear submarine in a Fast and Furious film <laughs> and then, like, jump th- from one building in Dubai to another? I don't know, it's just crazy stuff.
0: Yeah, I think they did. I think uh, maybe that is it. And think we've talked at length about sort of genres, ru- past, past uh, genre successes, ruining future genre films. And we don't need to go back into that, I don't think. Cause I'm sure there's plenty of minutes of us discussing that you can find on the Internet. But I think it just has to be said that um, it is a case that they did make some they fantastic action films from like the uh, late 80s and early 90s. Stuff like Die Hard, Lethal Weapon. I watched Fugitive over Christmas. That's incredible. Yeah stuff like that and then it just is like oh they made that we don't want to do the same thing so we just need to do it better and now we have the facilities where we can put in 10 times the explosion it's like well actually you don't need to
1: See, which I think is why films that contain action but aren't really about the action are are doing well it's stuff like 1917 which we're we're gonna go see tomorrow right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah we're seeing it tomorrow but i i From what I I know is that, yeah, it's a film that isn't about the action itself, or Inception. Again, Mm. Inception is a, yeah, it's a question, it's a kind of, you know, philosophical questions, character studies, but it just so happens to have bombastic action scenes.
0: Yeah, I think, well, even like something like um, Good Time or Uncut Gems, that's probably more thrilling than like, say, Skyscraper for a few years ago, because that's just, isn't, yeah, yeah, it just is just, I mean, that is just a rip-off of Die Hard anyway, but regardless of that, like, you're not going to be it it requires it doesn't the thriller like action and sort of the thrill of an action film isn't just it's not like there's not like an equation where it's like oh you did this many explosions plus this many gunfights plus this many bloody wounds equals a action it's actually much more compli- much more complicated than that and I think someone like Michael Bay's probably forgotten about that because obviously uh, maybe maybe it, maybe that's it though maybe it is maybe that equation I just said works for lots of money but it doesn't work for kind of an actually decent action thrill ride film yeah i mean
1: this is what i say about superhero films and i i swear i am not a sociopath this will make sense when i get to the end of my statement but when it comes to films and action films um it it almost feels as if for an audience one deep human life is a lot more easy to be um to, to relate to and, and get behind than hundreds, thousands, or millions of faceless lives, such as, say, Man of Steel. Man of Steel and then Batman vs Superman, the big plot point between the two is that Superman killed thousands of people uh, saving the Earth. So at what cost did he save the Earth? But you you don't really care for all the people that he's killed because you're like, well fine i mean it's just there's so many explosions and i i don't okay whereas something like good time or or uncut gems or or any other type type of film like that where it's one person's life falling apart you really start thinking that sure maybe death isn't the worst thing that could happen to them. Maybe losing their family is the worst thing that could happen to them. And you're like, okay, so this film is about trying not to lose their family or trying not to lose their job. And you're like, their job is the one thing they need to keep. I think perhaps
0: a good parallel to draw there is the difference between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises in the sense that the final sort of act of The Dark Knight is the bit where they're on the boat. And the boat, and they have the choice whether to kill, blow up the boat full of the convicts, or blow up, or risk themselves being blown up as well, or they'll both explode. And that is a very incredible moment of tension in that. And you sort of and you go between the both and you sort of have the people who... And obviously there's about a core group of about probably five or six people on each boat where they discuss it. And I think that is a lot more emotionally powerful than in The Dark Knight Rises when it's just, oh, he's got a bomb. Bane has a nuclear bomb now. I actually really like The Dark Knight Rises. I don't really want to disparage it too much. Mm. But I think in terms of a, a tense ending, I think the ending of... The ending of the Dark Knight is better than the ending of both Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises.
2: I think I I definitely agree, and I think I might be the first person to quote Stalin on this podcast. But um, one million deaths is a statistic, but one death is a tragedy. That's how it feels. Um, it? Like on my favorite film list, I do have one superhero film, and that's Avengers: Infinity War. And like that does have a big moment where like half the universe dies or whatever, mm. but, and that's very much like a you can't really empathize with that. But the reason I have it on there is because that is a film that's centred around Thanos as a character. Mm. And you kind of see, like, he's some, you know, super villain alien that's hard to relate to, but they actually do a good job of making you relate to him and his personal tragedy. Whereas in most superhero films, it's just, you know, like you mentioned, like, he's got a nuclear bomb and they're going to kill a million people. But you don't know any of those million people. You've never seen those stories, so you can't really relate to it.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that Infinity War did well is it kind of broke the mould of, like just it's sort of it's the problem that a lot of the phase one marvel films suffer from in the sense that you just have oh there's going to be a villain and he is going to do something bad whereas and there's not much depth to them it's like when you actually look at the villains from the marvel films actually none of them are actually that good really apart from the big ones like kind of thanos yeah it's really the only real good one especially and it was another one with the um and it's the joke a lot of people make about it is the sort of the c faceless cgi army in the sense that happens in literally all of them (laughs) when they just get loads of like Oh, a portal's opened up now, and there's
1: loads of weird-looking creatures here now, and we're going to fight them all. Yeah, w- w- what if those creatures had a family, huh? Little baby creatures being like, "Where's Dad?" <laughs> it's like Dad got zapped through a portal, and now he's dead. There's a
0: fantastic scene in I think it is uh, I think it's the first one, International Man of Mystery, or is it that spy who shagged me? Where it's the bit we're trying to uh, reverse the um reverse the uh, steamroller, and he actually <laughs> rolls over a. A, a henchman and then it goes into like a little vignette of like <laughs> the henchman uh, they're talking about hench, the life of a henchman and then it's like a, st- a stag deer, and it's like oh he's uh, the best man's not here yet it's like oh, where is he it's like and his, his wife's like at home making an extra portion of dinner puts it on the table he's oh! not there <laughs> and he's like oh I wonder when he'll get back it's obviously like he's dead because he's been ran over by a steamroller
1: <laughs> oh that's <was> brilliant <laughs> no that is it Austin Powers once again proving that it's probably one of the best film franchises of the last Thirty years.
0: It is good. Apart from the last one, which is very good. But...
1: And going going further back, thinking of early early in the, de- in the decades, um, what films are important to you from your childhood?
2: So when you guys asked me that question, like initially, I struggled with that, but then I thought about all the action figures I had, and I re- I realized that all the toys I had were because I watched the film, and then. I just fell for the marketing point and just <laughs> yeah. begged my mum for toys. So on there, um, I have Jurassic Park and I became obsessed with dinosaurs for a few years. And then I have Transformers. I became obsessed with Transformers. Um, I have Spider-Man on there. I became obsessed with superheroes. And I think the most recent film I have on there is Iron Man. And I think that's that for me is like... Because I think that was 2008? Yes, yeah. It yeah. Was. yeah, yeah. That, I was 10 years old when that came out. So that's like the definitive as films go, the definitive end of my childhood in terms of, like, buying toys because I think at that old I was too old to play with action figures. Hmm.
1: So you say Jurassic Park and I have a thing with Jurassic Park where I will... What used to happen to me as a kid, so I used to to watch a lot of telly as a kid. My parents always let me watch telly because I'd be like, oh, I'm going to watch documentaries, I'm going to watch films. They were like, it's fine. As long as you get your homework done, watch telly as much as you want. And Jurassic Park... Either of the three would come on, and I'd usually go, "Oh, I haven't seen this one, and then twenty minutes into the film, I'd be like, "No yeah, I have seen this one, and all three Jurassic Park films of the original ones blend together in my mind, and i I can't distinguish them until i've like I'm watching them
2: well, I think out of the original three Jurassic Park films, like I think only the first one is actually good by like if I were to watch it now, that would be the only one I'd actually enjoy but like, you can't really go wrong with dinosaurs destroying, like, uh, parks and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing that they sort of fell down. I think it falls down in the um, newer ones as well, in the sense that it is very interesting to see dinosaurs destroy something. But once you've seen it once, just because you put dinosaurs somewhere else, they are just dinosaurs destroying something. And I think you need, it needs more depth than that. And I also, because I actually didn't mind, um, I actually quite liked Jurassic World, the newer one. But then I went to see the second one, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. I absolutely hated it probably the worst thing i saw in the cinema in 2018 just because yeah. it was just it just didn't it was just boring it was long and it was just like oh here's what happened in the last film now we're just gonna do literally transpose it from here to somewhere else and then redo the whole thing. It just didn't do it for me
2: yeah i get the the point they tried to make with like genetic engineering but mm. they kind of made that point in the last film so it, it's just whereas the, the first film was about like I mean, in the original trilogy, they just did the same plot again and again. I feel like they're going down the same route. With yeah, I think
0: a lot of the sort of point of Jurassic Park is lost in the sense like it is just genetic engineering. Probably shouldn't be doing it on unqual- un- sort of shouldn't be doing it on um, what's the word? Un- unsupervised. Yeah, unsupervised. Yeah, sort of there very should very be su- there should be oversight on what they're yeah. doing. You can't just let BD Wong do every once. But that seems to happen in every film and he always seems <laughs> to make an appearance and never ends up sort of he sort of so he'll do something that'll destroy an entire park kill people no the police never want to know do they just oh and then about, about through the next film oh bd Wong's there how do he you get here? Well, I guess, every time
2: i guess in the jurassic park universe dinosaurs are a multi-million dollar industry so <laughs> you're never gonna get any any police oversight over that
0: yeah that's fair yeah um also yeah uh I like the fact that Transformers is on here because even that I just we gave a Michael Bay an absolute kicking about 10 <laughs> minutes ago.
2: <laughs> well, um I actually really like the first Transformers film and granted i have not seen it for a few years, but I think the other, the the there's like five of them now, I think the rest of Even as a kid I thought they were awful. Yeah. But um the first one I I genuinely enjoyed because like obviously as a kid, you know, you can enjoy robots that turn into cars no matter what context they're in. But I don't know. I feel like that film definitely had something to it and whereas the other films were just more like you know just pure action films I felt like there was actually a plot than they actually tried with the first one
1: whereas with I don't know Revenge of the Fallen it's just
2: more robots and more planes.
1: Well you say that yet Dark of the Moon which is like the fourth I, can't I think it's the third one. Third one. Anyway, Dark of the Moon we we actually analyzed this in one of my classes. Uh it's one of the best depictions on film um metaphorically speaking of the Iraq war is that accidental well that that's where the nuance lies because the whole thing is about uh using giant autonomous machines with heat seeking heat seeking capabilities and ma- massive powers of destruction against uh opponents in oh, they're in the Middle East. It's a threat that's somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, It features international cooperation, because, and that's very, very clear, because at one point, one of the soldiers in one of the uh, helicopters, the camera uh, focuses on his arm for a long, quote-unquote, long in Michael Bay terms time (laughs) to show that he's an SAS um, operative, and that's kind of, oh, the Brits are also involved in this. It's an international thing. So, yeah, it all kind of ties in to this really weirdly accurate depiction of the Iraq War.
0: I might actually go and watch that film now because I'm actually genuinely intrigued.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could just look up the scene, though. Um, oh, okay. I don't think you need to watch the film. It's just yeah. one scene that's, like, five minutes long and, it, it yeah, it makes sense.
0: I think, uh, to be fair, weirdly, what we said about Jurassic Park probably brings true as well if you just replace the word dinosaur with robot. Like, watching robots absolutely kick seven shades of whatever out of each other, probably quite exciting, Watched them do it over and over again for six films. Less exciting.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, like I said before, they're just poised to sell kids' toys, and eight-year-old me definitely fell into that.
1: <laughs> well, here's the thing: giant robot fights giant monster, right? Pacific Rim, love it. One of the best action films of the last few decades. It's just the the it it is what you you what you see is what you get. It doesn't go any deeper. It doesn't have to go any deeper. It's just fun. Then you have um, Transformers. can't remember the name, but it's the one where there is a dinosaur transformer. Age of Extinction. I can't even remember the name. I think I it's Age was, of Extinction. I thought it was like The, the Last... Oh, The Last night. night. Oh, is yeah. that the one with
0: Anthony Hopkins then?
1: I can't remember. It's one, one, oh, God. This is... Anyway, whichever one is, you think Optimus Prime with sword fighting a giant dinosaur... Sounds great, except it's one of the only films that I've fallen asleep to in the cinema. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think it probably is last night. because that was m- a lot more recent.
1: Yeah, must be. Oh.
0: Mm-hmm. apparently Bumblebee wasn't that bad though.
1: But it's it's like superhero fatigue, Transformers fatigue, set in. It's like who who do you really want to go watch the origin story of Bumblebee again? Since they rebooted the franchise, what technically twice. Well, I suppose, yeah, you did. Re- does
0: it count as a reboot when they got rid of Shia?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I see. I, I don't know what the story is, but is Mark Wahlberg the same character?
0: No. Someone different. It's, this, oh. it's the
2: same shared universe, right?
0: Yes, I think it is. I think, yeah, I think. I don't, I don't know if they ever explain what happens to Shia LaBeouf, but he does. isn't in it anymore. And then obviously it goes to Mark, Marky
1: Mark. I See, I, I'm so lost. We, we could have our own full podcast about understanding the cinematic universe of Transformers. <laughs> Yeah, we could we could do, but
0: we won't. Yeah, no one would listen to it. <laughs> but we could do it. But yeah, I think on sort of on that level of uh, things, we will do. I think we'll wrap up the podcast here. Uh, yeah, thank we- you very much for coming on, Muston. Thank you for having me. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, well, me and Toby together would like to
2: plug uh, our friend's album.
1: Yeah, which. Again, running theme in this podcast, Softboy Central. We currently have two-thirds of Softboy Central in this room. (laughs) And the last third of it is um, our homie Joel, who um, did the intro and outro for this podcast. And he has just released an EP. Yeah, um, it's called The Great Uncertainty. And um, you can stream it on um... Apple Music, Spotify. It's not on YouTube yet, but basically most streaming services will have it. And the way I the way I describe it, if you know about hip hop, it's very very much inspired by Mike Dean, who is a producer for Kanye, and he has like electric guitars and and stuff. If not, it's more of like a modern instrumental, 19 minute album. Like it's short, it's straight to the point, and it's it's, it's damn
0: good. Well, I will. I did actually check some of it out. I think I listened to the first two tracks, and I did genuinely enjoy it. So I would how heartily recommend it to our listeners. Okay,
1: so shout out about Joel Todd. So J-O-E-L-T-O-double-D The Great Uncertainty Check it out uh, You can find me on Twitter at
0: Josh Sandy And on Instagram at Josh W Sandy
1: You can find me on yeah all my social media At Tobias Sore. Also Letterboxd, we all have Letterboxd Find us on Letterboxd Yes, follow us on
0: Letterboxd Because I update at weird times And thank you much for listening And we will be back next week with another friend
1: I mean, I hope it's a friend and not an enemy Yeah, that'd be bad <laughs> Goodbye <laughs> Oh, oh,